Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. Stepping into the interrogation room today is acclaimed author Stuart Neville. Stuart's debut novel is called The Twelve and was published in the U.S. as The Ghosts of Belfast, won the mystery thriller category of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and was picked as one of the top crime novels of 2009 by both the New York Times and the L.A. Times. He's been shortlisted for various awards including the Barry, McCavity, Dilly's Award, as well as the Irish Book Awards Crime Novel of the Year. Stewart's also written two novels under a pen name, Halen Beck, the latest of which is called Lost You and releases on August 6th. Welcome to the program, Stuart. I greatly appreciate you making time for Writers on the Beat today. No problem at all. It's my pleasure. So I've just recently started reading Lost You, and this is an immediately intriguing book that it just absolutely grabs hold of me from the first sentence. I, I'm really impressed with how effectively you hook the reader, and it, it really makes me want to keep reading this thing late into the night. Well done. Well, thank you. Now, for readers who are new to you and new to this book, what do you want them to know about Lost You? Uh, Lost You, it's a standalone thriller. Um, all the books that I write under the name Halen Beck are standalone novels set in America. Um, this one um, opens with a survey, I think quite a dramatic scene on a rooftop. Mm-hmm. A woman holding a young child threatening to jump from the roof of a hotel. And uh, we quickly sort of step back in time and start finding out what led to this. Um, these circumstances and the, the novel begins with um, a woman called Libby Reese, who also happens to be a writer, um, going on vacation with her three-year-old, Ethan. And um, in a moment, just a single moment of uh, inattention, Ethan manages to get away from her into an elevator, hits a row of buttons, the elevator doors close, and he's disappeared. And uh, the... Initial threat seems to be that the child is missing, but as the story unfolds, we realize that the real threat is that the child has been found. <laughs> yes, and that that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about uh, about this book and, and, and even the, the publicity of it, even before I got to start reading it, is I think it is, it is such an original and also terrifying story that plays upon every fear, I think, of of any parent who's, especially somebody who's either adopted a child or as a step-parent, um, I, I think you've really managed to to get deep into people's psyche with this concept. Well, thank you. I mean, the the, the initial idea of the child disappearing was based on something that actually happened to us on vacation. Oh, no. Uh, didn't go as, as dramatically wrong as it does in the book, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad to say. <laughs> yes. But, but um, uh, we were on vacation in Spain, on uh, a town called Salou on the Costa Dorada. Um, typical kind of family resort, you know, swimming pool and high-rise building. We were on the top floor. And uh, every time we came out of our room to go to the pool or to go to the restaurant, whatever, we'd be coming out with our arms just laden with uh, like towels and books and all the stuff you need for the mm-hmm. room for the day. And our little boy, who was three at the time, for some reason was fascinated with elevators. And if he saw the elevator at the end of the corridor open, he would sprint for it. Oh, no. And start just hitting, <laughs> hitting buttons. 
and it was a queue us in a panic running after him and but we realized that if the doors closed and, and the elevator moved how do we know where he wound up um in this hotel and uh thankfully it never happened i mean it came as close as the the, the doors closing on my wrist wow. um but this this idea stayed with me that the what if of that yes and uh it was a couple of years passed actually, and, and and this thing kept nagging me, and uh, I decided that was the a, a good way to start a thriller. Um, but it, it gets more involved in that. I mean, it, it's it's a child being lost in a hotel isn't going to keep you going for eighty thousand words, three hundred pages. Right. Um, so it, it does get a lot more involved in that. Now, I I would definitely say this is you know for for my opinion very solidly a a psychological thriller and. I wonder for you, as you were writing this from a craft perspective, what were some of the key elements, maybe the obligatory scenes, the, the things, the elements that you knew had to be in the story uh, for this specific subgenre and the readers you were hoping to reach with it? Um, it's not that different from the other thrillers that I've written, either as Hale and Beck or under my own name, in terms of um, the nuts and bolts of how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this is in the, if I very firmly in that uh, psychological thriller subgenre, um, the main thing is always character. Yes, and um, in all of my books, um, they're always told from maybe two, three points of view, and every character is the center of their own story, including the villain. If there's something yes. new, yeah, every character is essence the hero of their own story, no matter what side of right or wrong they're on. And um, every step of the story, every action that's taken, every movement in the plot is purely fueled by the character, the choices they make um, when they're faced with an X or Y decision they take, X, Y, whatever, you know, and the story will unfold based on that. And so it's not really any different. Um, say, between a psychological thriller like this or one of my more um, sort of politically based thrillers that are maybe more violent, mm-hmm. it still comes down to character choices. One of the things that, that strikes me as a real consistency, I don't know that it's necessarily a, you know, a rule or an obligatory element, but one of the consistencies among a lot of psychological thrillers to me seems to be that um, you know, they have these ordinary folks getting cast into extraordinary circumstances and then, you know, seeing how they react to it. And I wonder, as you were writing this with it, having been based on such a, a personal experience, if a lot of your um, your thoughts and, and your processes as a as a parent made it into these these characters. Um, I don't think that can be helped. I think it's, it's no matter what you write, um, there's always a certain amount of the author um, seeps into it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that can ever be avoided. Um, you know, it doesn't mean to say that every character would have my values or, you know, I mean, I, I could write about characters who might be racist or homophobic or sure. not, not in this book specifically, but I have done it in the past. Um, which I'd like to think are things that I don't share, but uh, even <laughs> yes. so, um, yeah. you have to sort of exercise a bit of that sort of empathetic thing that I think all writers really have is that that ability to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and see the world through their eyes. Um, 
and uh, I think I think that's something that the psychological thrillers have really kind of um, honed in on is is kind of boring down into the individual character and how they view the world and and as you say the ordinary person thrown into extraordinary circumstances how they would then cope with that um and the right as a writer you have to draw something internally to to make that work one of the things i also wanted to ask you about is is as a writer how um how you went about the 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 time manipulation and the chronology of this book as, as you mentioned earlier, it starts out in this very dramatic scene, and then the reader gets to go back in time and they kind of start from the beginning. When you're committing those types of intentional chronology alterations as a writer, how careful do you have to be about making sure the reader stays with the book? I think I think you have to give the, the reader credit um, for being able to keep up with, with, with what you're doing, as long as you're clear about it, as long as you don't try and budge anything. Um, I think the reader... Will stay with you, and and I think this is the first book I've written where it does that thing of um, starting at the end, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and it makes a couple of leaps around in time, um, but it doesn't go back and forth. It kind of there once it's in a certain time slot, it stays there in a linear way until there's another jump. It doesn't. I don't think it's too confusing that way. Um, but I, I think if if you're clear in the the narrative about where we are in time and so on, I think the reader will come with you. When you're writing your characters and and the the point of view that the audience gets to experience them in, is that something that you consciously choose for them, first or third person, or is that something that characters generally do for you while you're sussing out their personalities and their their background? Um, for some reason, uh, I don't have like a specific rule for myself in this, but for some reason with novels, I've always written close third person. Um, very rarely strayed from that. Whereas short stories, I'd very often write in the first person. I don't know why I do that, but that's the way it works out. But um, I think the bigger choice really is figuring out which characters are actually going to be point of view, mm-hmm. as opposed to those characters who are supporting. You know, um, are in the background more. And I guess that comes down to how much heavy lifting that particular character has to do in the story, or how how much their choices are the ones that drive things along. But I generally. Again, there are the things that I've I've sort of established for myself as a writer that I'm really intending to. One is that I tend to have two, three, occasionally four points of view throughout a novel, and um, also I tend to alternate chapters. One chapter will be mm-hmm. with one character, another chapter with another, and so on. Um, and again, those aren't really conscious decisions. It just tends to be the way it works out. When you're creating your characters, is there a, do you have a specific linear intentional process of how you go about creating characters, or is it a lot a lot mushier than that? Strangely, for for some reason, um, characters tend to come to me f- quite fully formed. Wow. And there have been occasions where a character, you know, I might have introduced a character who was only tended to play mm-hmm. a minor role, then all of a sudden they take on a much larger role. And there's, there's a character in in uh, in Lost You called Mr. Kovac, mm-hmm. who wasn't really meant to have as big a role as he does in the story, um, but he winds up being a point of view character and, and, and driving quite a part, bit of the story. But but I find in almost all cases, once they're on the page, once I've started writing the first few sentences, that's kind of them. I have them figured out. I know who they are. Um, I can think of maybe one or two exceptions in 10 years of writing books, but um, wow. mostly they're there fully formed, including the very vague sketch I have in my head of their appearance and uh, the way they speak and usually their names as well. 
Now you already you know, mentioned them being totally fully formed. I, I wonder if you have any crafting or anything that you have to do as you're writing to make sure that they are um, very relatable characters, even the even the villain. And in this story in particular, how did you decide who the villain was? This story in particular, um, I, mm, you, the reader might have to change their mind a couple times <laughs> as, as to who the villain yes. actually is. Yes. Um, I it's going to be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Mr. Kovac... Um, for the most of the story is is kind of the the boogeyman in the story um mm-hmm. but the way i mean i i i really enjoy writing villains it's one of my favorite things but i can't i write them in much the same way i write anybody else and that it's just them making a series of choices driven by whatever desires they have and, you know they they have some there's something that they want there's something they need to achieve mm-hmm. whatever reason and the story is driven by the choices they make in pursuit of that desire so whether it's a protagonist or antagonist, a hero or a villain, I simply can't wind them up and let them go. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? They they make their yeah. choices, and that that's what drives the story. And I I'll know where I want them to end up. I will have an ending in mind. I know where I want all those threads to wind together by the end of the story. But how they get there is really a matter of trying to be in that character's head in that mm-hmm. moment and what making the choices that I think they would make. I wonder, with you having already been writing for this long. When did you know you could write and that people other than your parents wanted to read what you had to say? Well, I mean, I, I had wanted to be a writer since I was a kid and uh, I've been trying to write on and off for, you know, ever since I was maybe eight, nine years old. And um, all through my teens and adulthood, I would, I would write a couple of pages here, maybe a chapter there, maybe half a short mm-hmm. story and inevitably realized that it was actually quite hard work because... <laughs> Because I'm 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 lazy by nature. Um, but I was end up sitting on the side, and I was I was in my mid thirties, early early thirties maybe, when I kind of had a light bulb moment where I realized if if I'm ever going to do this, I need to take it seriously and do it now. I wasn't getting any younger. Yes, but I didn't tell anybody I was writing for quite a long time after that, and I wrote two complete novels, which will never ever see the light of day. And then I started uh, going back maybe eleven, twelve years ago. There was a very lively scene online of of um, blogs and so on where people would share their writing and mm-hmm. take each other's writing and so on. And I was taking part in those under um, you know under a screen name, sure, that revealed my identity. And I was when I started getting a positive response through that, and um, uh, somebody actually bought a short story through that, and I realized actually there's something here. Maybe yeah. maybe I can do this, and. Um, that encouraged me to keep going. Then the third novel I wrote uh, was The Ghost of Belfast. And again, I, I, I'd, my literary agent saw a short story that I'd uh, sold to another magazine and got in touch and asked about this novel that I'd written. And, and so on. And it wasn't really until I had a literary agent that I started telling friends and family wow. that I was writing. Because it kind of, like, I kept it to myself because it seemed like a ridiculous thing to do. <laughs> you know? Yes. So I, much pressure. You know, well, when you're doing, I think any creative endeavor, mm-hmm. um, there's a certain amount, you've got a certain blend of insularity or, or, or introversion, mm-hmm. but balanced with a, a quite a healthy ego as well. So you've got this thing of wanting to keep things yourself and you want to be in your own head, but also you want to share the stories as well. You want to actually get people to read them, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you're balancing those two sides of your own personality. And, um, you know, it wasn't until there was some kind of professional validation that I felt I was able to actually share this with people that I knew. 
Yeah, I, somebody told me once that uh, they, they summed up the stereotypical writer personality as, I have a great story I'd love to tell you, but I don't want to make eye contact while I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Very good, yes. That was one of the things that I, I did not appreciate until I put my first book out, how, how much a piece of your soul that is, that you're sending out into the cold, cruel world of the internet for you know criticism and accolade and you kind of have to just stand back and, you know, it was a yeah, very I mean, personal thing I didn't expect. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think those, uh, online forums where I was getting critique mm -hmm. and so on, I think that was a really good training ground for me, um, in terms of then getting a literary agent and editors who were going to pull my work apart. Yes. And learning how to accept critique and act on it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I find those sort of formative experiences of people uh, criticizing my work really, really helpful in, in getting me ready for that later on. Along the way, have you had a writing mentor who's helped you either through school or through the, the publishing process over the years? Um, well, going back to that same time period of, of, of blogs and so on, there's um, a lady called Betsy Dornbush who uh, was... I'm not sure she still is. She was an editor on Electric Spec. It was a kind of sci-fi and fantasy online short story magazine. And um, she bought my first short story, but we wound up critiquing each other's work. And um, she critiqued Ghosts of Belfast for me and so on. And, and she's now, she's published several uh, fantasy novels as well since. Um, but she was a real, uh, real help to me early on. And just for one thing, giving me that critique and being mm -hmm. honest and blunt and helping me improve things, but also giving me the encouragement to keep going and keep trying. Yeah, so I mean, Betsy was a huge help early on. I'm still a good friend now. I, say, I think it's really critical for, for writers to get that constructive criticism, as you mentioned early on, because it's uh, the most helpful and most heartbreaking critiques I got were from my, my first editor. And, you know, for to be able to get that stuff out of the way early and appreciate you know, the, the experience and the vast wealth of knowledge that you're getting this information from is tremendously beneficial. And, you know, when she tore my first book apart, that was, you know, easily twice the size it should have been. And, you know, I was trying to write in a third person omniscient, like Tom Clancy and her narration mm -hmm. style. And she's like, you know, that word for Tom Clancy, you're not Tom Clancy. Don't try this. And, um, and ended up cleaving the book in two and, and turned it into uh, enemies domestic was the first one and then enemies foreign, but that mm -hmm. really totally saved everything about that effort. And, um, I, I've been incredibly grateful for, for the candor. I think it is so important for a writer. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's important to get the right person critiquing the mm -hmm. work as well, yes. because n not every, in fairness, not every opinion is valuable. No. Some critiques are better than others, but you also have to learn how to deal with it. I mean, I have, I have a process for dealing with it. And it's been consistent from uh, sort of peer critiques back then to my agent's notes now and my editor's notes now, which is you get the notes, you read them through, you curse the heavens and the stars <laughs> and the earth, and you rage, you swear you're, this is all nonsense, you're never going to write anything again. Yes. You, yeah. let, you let it sit for a day, then you come back, you read the notes again and go, okay, maybe they're right. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. there's, there's, always a, there's always an emotional reaction, first of all, when you first get the critique, but the trick is then being able to sort of set that aside for a day or two and then mm -hmm. come back and actually look at it and ask yourself, are they right? Is, does this need improving? Should this be 
changed, whatever your critique happens to be. Yeah, and I, I think it's really important, like you mentioned, to give yourself a little bit of time distance to to let things settle and resonate. And you know, uh, some things you know are subjective opinion, and other things are really valuable. And it's uh, you know, you've got to decide it's your work. Decide what what works mm-hmm. for you and what works for the for the characters. Yeah. Now, what would you most like readers to to take away from your writing, whether it's the the psychological thrillers or the the the, the bigger thrillers you write under your own name? Um, just that they wanted to turn the pages and they wanted mm-hmm. to come back for more. I think. So, I mean, I have no loftier ideals than um, entertain somebody for a few hours. Um, you know, if they if they get anything more out of it than that, then that's 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 gravy, really. But, um, <laughs> yes. You know, it's 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 for them to enjoy the read and, and want to read another. I think that's all I can ask. I think that that is an incredibly noble endeavor to be able to to help folks get out of their own heads and out of their own lives and the things that they're trying to escape from in a constructive manner with something like a book rather than, you know, maybe using some other type of destructive escapism. And yeah. it's a tremendous compliment to me when, when somebody's willing to trade their time and treasure for, you know, a few hours of mucking their way through one of my stories that I try really hard to do a good job on. You know, it's uh, it, it really is uh, a, a really tremendous thing. It is. It is. Now, one of the things that I, I talk to almost everyone who comes on this show about is, you know, my experience that writers are among the most ferocious readers. And I wonder if you have a favored investigator, detective, um, whether on TV, books, or film. And books... Um character i've always liked to come back to and he only appears in a, a couple of books is uh, pete bondurant who is a um, kind of a button man kind of an enforcer in uh james elroy's mm. books yes. he um this is some of his biggest roles are in uh um american tabloid and you know the the, the american underworld series of books um i like that he's just an unrepentant nasty piece of work <laughs> but somehow manages to have some sort of decency about him at the yes. same time um i've always i've always loved that character um you'll notice the theme here as i go on um there's uh i don't know how familiar you are with the character of jack carter i'm not um he was in uh, most people would know him from there's a movie from the early 70s or uh from 1970-ish with michael Caine called get carter yes yeah um, and that that's based on a book called Jack's Return Home, okay, by Ted Lewis. Um, it might have been republished as Get Carter later on, and it was that was initially a standalone novel, and then uh, there were a couple more uh, sort of spin-off books written after. But I've always loved that character. Again, for the same reasons that I like Pete Bondurant, he's just a horrible, horrible, horrible man, nasty, violent, misogynistic, terrible person. But at the same time, the books are written in such a way that you're dragged along with him whether you like it or not mm-hmm. um, end up rooting for so the I, I do like yeah and I, I, it's, it's a thing I admire in, in a writer to be able to put the reader in, in a, a, a bad man's shoes mm-hmm. or a bad woman's shoes a bad person's shoes but keep your empathy and keep you with them um, I think another, another, my, one of my favourite examples of that is is Red Dragon oh yeah Thomas Harris and yeah. um, the character of Francis Dollarhide, who 
as a murderer of children. And he's done the most despicable, horrific things you can imagine. But he, uh, Harris manages to write him in such a way that by the end of the book, you're not sure if you're rooting for him or if you're rooting for the agent who's trying to catch him. And to me, that's that's just brilliant writing. Keeping that last answer in mind, this is my last question for all the authors on the show, mostly because it's fun for me. But God forbid it should come to pass, Stuart. But if you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you want working your murder case? Oh, Sainz are talking about Thomas Ash. I think Clara Starling. That's an excellent choice. Nobody, I don't think, has picked her yet. I think this is episode 61. Well, she, she's um, she's as good as they get, right? Yes. I think as detectives go in terms of uh, drive and, mm-hmm. and force of will. Yeah, I, she'd get the job done. Well, I, I think that's an excellent choice. And uh, like I said... God forbid, hopefully it never come to pass. But if we can get Clarice Starling on the case. Thank you, Strauss. Yeah. <laughs> well, I greatly appreciate you making time for us, Stuart. This has been fantastic talking to you. And, and best of luck on the release next week of Lost You. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed Edgar-nominated author Stuart Neville, who also writes under the pen name Halenbeck. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.